0: Hi, and welcome to this week's Foundation Stage Forum podcast. Today, I'm joined by Catherine McLeod and Liz Pemberton. Catherine is the CEO of Dingley's Promise. Over the last 20 years, Catherine has worked in the charity sector to ensure access and inclusion for people with disabilities. Liz Pemberton is the director of the Black Nursery Manager Limited, a training and consultancy firm which focuses on anti-racist practice within the early years. With 16 years in the education sector, Liz's roles have included secondary school teacher, public speaker and nursery manager. Liz has recently delivered training to Catherine's team, which prompted us to arrange this podcast. So welcome, Catherine and Liz. I wondered if we could start by discussing the concept of differences between inclusion and belonging, as I know this is something you've been exploring recently, Liz.
1: Um, Yeah, absolutely. First of all, hello. Uh, Thanks for having me back. I know it's my second time on the uh, podcast. But it is something that I've been thinking about a lot, actually, with the work and the way that it's progressed, inclusion and belonging. And I guess thinking more about language, how we use it and what people understand. So I've tended to think about how we use inclusion as a way of making like everybody feel as though they are included in the conversation, included in the thought processes um, and how that differs from belonging and the feeling of the word belonging, particularly, as I said, in this work around anti-racism and also the notion of moving forward from, you know, this thing around diversity, multiculturalism, feeling like you belong is very different to, I guess, inclusion. And the way in which I've thought about it is, you know, if you're making um, a meal, you already know what you're going to be making. You already have the ingredients um, and you are you know inviting somebody to come along and say bring something to to put into this meal I already know that I'm making I know it's going to be wonderful but just come and add your own ingredients the notion of belonging is us sitting down and thinking about what meal we want to make from scratch how are we going to make sure that everybody feels as though they are a part of this beautiful meal that we're all going to eat and I'm liking it to, to food because you know I like to eat. (laughs) So I often think about this in in a recipe format, the feeling of belonging and how much more wholesome it is when you know that you have had a part to play in making this meal from scratch. And for me, that's what belonging is, feeling as though you've part of the conversation from the very, very start, part of the process from the very, very start, as opposed to being included afterwards when you've already got in your mind, you know, how you want things to be. I hope that analogy made
2: sense, because I've thought about that and that's what I've been talking about.
0: Mm. I, guess, I think know. it's a really good analogy.
2: And it's interesting because, I mean, I think when, when you think about the work that we do around children, special educational needs and disabilities, it's so stark, the difference between, we and we call it inclusion and meaningful inclusion, but I think it's a very similar thing to inclusion and belonging. And what we often see is a lot of sort of adult input and adult control of children with SEND. And and sometimes children with SEND in a mainstream classroom who are there, and it's called inclusion, but actually in reality, they don't belong. They're not part of the actual group. uh, They're not playing with their peers. And it's, it's just, it's a really hard thing to talk about because i think sometimes people sort of say well do you know what they're there and that's that's it we've made a start it's all good and as you said it's about you know it's about getting under the skin of that and saying well no just being there isn't enough yes that may be technically inclusive but how does that child feel part of it how how are they seen how are they valued and how do they belong so yeah I, it's it's so vital
1: Totally. I also want to add as well, I think it really influences things like guidance and policy. When we start looking at inclusion, you start to see the way in which um, particular children are added on as an afterthought. And that really does influence the way in which practitioners, teachers, you know, assistants engage with children with SEND as well, because it is almost like something that they've had to think about. And then it becomes this conversation around adaption. Um, Yes um adaption adaptation adaptation yeah that might be a word that might be a part where you take out a conversation around adaptation and I think when we start looking at as I said guidance and policy uh and things that are introduced we want to move this away from practitioners teachers um thinking about this as an afterthought because Again, it's about the emotional feel, isn't it? And about how children should be made to feel. We want to talk always about the unique child. What makes a child unique? How are we valuing those children? And not just looking at, quote unquote, difference, because I think also the language around how we position difference is problematic as well. We need to think about individuality, yes, we need to think about how children feel as though they belong, but that needs to start at a grassroots level
2: right from the beginning, um, all
1: the way up and not a top-down approach. And also
2: that huge effect that it has on staff development, because also the number of times I've heard people saying, but we don't have a child like that right now, so we don't need to do that training or we don't need to develop that skill, no. You know, When the child and family arrived, you should know that already, you should be able to support them and help them belong. Otherwise, it, it's again, it, it's responsive. It's not there. It's not there as standard. And, and, you know, it's not about difference. It's about a range of skills to support a range of children and families totally i think that work that we had done together catherine
1: as well was so interesting because we saw so many parallels didn't we so when we were thinking Mm. about SEND and we were thinking about anti-racism there were these conversations that we we knew were happening which were around well we don't really need to do that because we don't have any children here uh, who are east southeast asian heritage we don't need to think about that because we don't have any children here um with send we don't have that and so this notion of trying to kind of not engage with a really important work was dismissed because of this thing of, well, it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter here. And also yeah. we are the professionals. We know everything that there is to know. There's nothing more that we can, we can learn instead of looking at it as a constant and consistent learning journey about how we strengthen practice um, collectively and collaboratively.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to come on to... bit more about professional development later on I think it's a really interesting topic we've got one word I wanted to focus on for now is intersectionality and it's a word that many of us have only really come across and discovered in the last 12 months I'm embarrassed to admit but Liz could you explain what it means and more specifically um, could we discuss the intersection of anti-racism and SEND?
1: Mm, I think one of the things that I want to address straight away, Stephen, is don't feel embarrassed. This work is not about embarrassment. It's not about shame. It's not about feeling guilty. We know what we know. When we know more, we do more. When we know better, we can do better. And this work that we do around anti-racism and around the intersections of anti-racist work cannot be, um, I guess, shrouded with guilt You know, we're all coming to this work with different levels of understanding and different notions of our own lived experiences. And often when I'm thinking about these concepts and the ways in which I introduce these concepts into the work, it has to start from a point of just engaging with this material um, in a in a in a non shaming way. Or at least I I hope that I deliver that in that way. So when we're thinking about intersectionality, we're thinking, of course, about um, the wonderful Kimberly Quenshaw, who coined the phrase um, as a result of the work that she was doing in America um, around criminal justice and looking at the ways in which multiple, um, I guess, characteristics around our identity lend us more or less to systems of oppression. So she had looked at the ways in which, you know, perhaps if you were a white cisgender Heterosexual man, the way in which um, the law would come down on you or not, and then likening that to how that might differ if you were um, a black um, trans woman, how that might differ. So looking at just I guess systems of oppression and the way in which the system. So looking at systemic, you know, institutional uh, racism. Looking at how those things might oppress in different ways and. Kimberly Crenshaw started to look at the ways in which that might be applied in other areas and other academics, scholars, people who were coming to work in different areas with regards to, you know, healthcare or education. Um, in this sense, you know, I'm looking at it within the early year sector, how that same model, that same framework of intersectionality can be applied. So one of the things that I do when I introduce myself in any of the work that I do is I talk about my identity markers, and I talk about how my identity markers help me navigate not only my life, but how I come to this work. So as a black cisgendered woman, how I come to this work, how I understand this work because of the life that I've led, so the the lived experience, but also the opportunities that I may or may not have been afforded based on those identity markers. And when we're thinking about intersectionality, although people may not be um, always familiar with that word because of the work that they've done, or the, the, the things that they've, I guess, experienced or explored, they are aware that intersectionality is a big part of their life once we start breaking down the concept. So when I've spoken about my position within the early year sector as now a consultant and a trainer, I look around and think how many people are in this space and occupy this space, um, not only how many people look like me, but how many people are approaching the work in the same way that I may be approaching that. And we'll see, you know, the numbers will tell us, we can see for ourselves, very few and far between. So there might be people that are approaching this work and doing work around anti-racism, even within the early year sector. But by and large, a lot of the texts that I come across and read, the literature that has been written has been written by white women. And that begs a question about why. You know, I like to investigate and find out. I like to ask those questions why and we're thinking about the way in which anti-racism has developed in the early years because there's a long history of it as well and the intersectionality of that how and who is doing this work and why who is theorizing this work and who's lending themselves to this work through their own lived experience the question of intersectionality comes in again so you know we're really looking at ways in which the system again comes back to this word includes or excludes um, but also how this system makes certain people feel as though they belong in this space to talk about this um, and to explore it and also to deliver a message around various ways that we can approach. So that's a really long winded way in true Liz Pemberton style, (laughs) you know, just to kind of, I guess, embed that in terms of a way of thinking about it. What what does intersectionality mean and, and some of the origins of that and the way in which it's, it's moved through uh, different places and spaces and and countries as well.
0: And in terms of that intersection between anti-racism and SEND, mm-hmm. have you got any particular thoughts on that, Liz? I know this is sort of, I suppose, the training you've done with Catherine was a relatively new experience for you, I know. Um, do you feel like, over recent months when you've thought, more about that particular intersection you've reflected in any?
1: Absolutely. When me and Catherine first had a conversation about ways in which we could marry our work together, Catherine has been, you know, really, um, really committed to how we look at equity access um, and provision as well within within the work that she's done. And, And so we approach this with the same attitude, of of accessibility, of equity, and also around changing policy. And so there were a lot of parallels in the work that we both did because of course she'd come to me about the work that she had done. And I came to her with the way in which we could think about marrying the two together. And I thought about some of the um, oppressive uh, factors or things around accessibility, if we're thinking about SEND and racism, because they they are two uh, very, I guess, very hard things for people to reckon with if they're looking at areas of oppression. You know, and I say that word a lot, but we, we have to look at how society looks at children with SEND, and we've got to look at how society looks at children who are racialized as being Black or whose heritage is rooted in, in South Asia, um, whose heritage is rooted in East or Southeast um, Asia, and look at how the multiple oppressive factors of race and disability impact differently. There is a different experience for the child who is racialized as white, who is in SEND provisions, compared to that of a child who is racialized as black. And therein lies the intersection, conversation, and questions around what we do to, number one, address that. Say it as it is, call it out, you know, name it because we have to be able to name these things in order for us to think about strategies to I guess help and we have to be really bold in doing that as well because there are conversations to be had around if we think about diagnosis for we had a conversation around black children and autism it's a conversation that happens quite regularly but does it happen in a space where we are in a position to do anything about it? And I think because we're both in positions where we can actually <clears throat> drive forward change, we have to look at the problem around later diagnosis and the the, the, the link between that webinar that I do, Black Boy Joy, and the myth of misbehaviour, um, and how misbehaviour is seen as the go-to if we're thinking about black boys, instead of perhaps, are we going to have a conversation around SEND? Are we going to have a conversation around diagnosis? Are we going to have a conversation about what that looks like and how that might be masked if we're just going to put it down to racial stereotypes lazy stereotypes that look at just naming that as misbehavior you know oh it's what they do in their culture you know there's a there's a notion there around it couldn't be anything else it it can only be um uh, around you know, a a diagnosis of misbehaviour rather than looking at something that could be much wider. And that's where our work, you know, that that me and Catherine had done really married up because we started looking at intersections and just helping practitioners to also have that
2: wider, broader perspective as well. And I I think it was really interesting um, around the work that Liz is doing on, um, you know, Black Boy Joy, the myth of misbehaviour, because it's just something that, From my background, I had no idea that that was even an issue. And I think it was when I watched one of the Small Acts films and watching that, I just it's, you know, it suddenly clicked. Oh, my word, a whole area that I'd never considered. And that obviously, you know, Liz is working really hard to raise awareness of. And in our in one of our centres, we've got 75 percent of the children there are from diverse ethnic communities. And yet in that area, um, the number of um, families from that background are, is much lower. And then after sort of watching the small acts film and talking to Liz, I suddenly thought, oh my word, you know, could this be overdiagnosis?" And I think it's, it's really interesting because when you're trying to understand better what, what the issues are, what you need to be doing, of course, you, know, you start to look at data, you start to say, right, who is in? Who is with us? Who is not with us? Are we reaching the right people? But I think it's just that reminder that it's also really easy to make assumptions and say, "Oh, do you know what? Look, the numbers of children are really high. We're doing a great job. Uh, you know, we are accessible and we are inclusive." But then it makes. You know, you find out another thing, and you realise how much you don't know, and it, then it made me think, oh my word, actually, could this be something to do with overdiagnosis? So, I mean, we're still on a journey, and that sort of that interaction between send and an anti-racism racism. It, you know, you you look at these things, and you realise that it's just a constant, constant learning, updating of information, and again, you may do a bit of training. But then you've got to think about how do we keep updating this? How do we make this live? Because if it's not live, then it's, it probably wasn't worth doing in the first place. And I think there is always a conversation, isn't
1: there, around, you know, over-diagnosis uh, and under-diagnosis. I mean, it's that continuum that we have to really think about. And I think when me and Catherine had had that conversation, Stephen, about particularly that, you know, small acts. um episode called Education Uh, and looking also at the work of people that, you know, predecessors for me, people who have been Mm. stalwarts in this, this work, you know, Bernard Cord writing about how the West Indian child was made educationally subnormal you know, latterly, we'd had a documentary about that, haven't we, a few weeks ago? Mm. And I can look at the statistics, I can look at the data, and I know that that's to to be the the case, and that to be the truth, way before I was born. But I also know that I've got the added narrative of my mother and father's lived experiences, people who came from Jamaica, you know, to Britain when they were 14, and and put in these remedial classes, um, and were made to be educationally subnormal. So that that aid of lived experience, now, that's very close to home. That's within my own family unit. And so I think you come to this work with a different energy because you know it to be true because of the data, true because of what has been theorised and written, true because it's your lived experience and true because it's your family and true also because you know you're still occupying these identity markers which mean that irrespective of what you know, my educational achievements are, I come to the work knowing that there's a part of me that feels like I have to let people know, you know, I've been doing this for however long. I have to let people know, you know, I've got a degree. I have to let people know I've got a master's. I have to let people, you know, because you still have that internalizing of white supremacy, you know, and internalizing those values means that you come to this work almost being aware of the fact that, These notions of your parents saying you've got to work 10 times harder. It's going to be different for you, Elizabeth. You have to do that is my lived experience. And although you you um, feel like you're ridding some of those things, you know, as you get older and you get more confident and you go through the education system and you've had a good or a better experience than your parents, you still know the history that proceeds. So I think it was brilliant to have uh, such a profile raised, um, courtesy you know, of, of Steve McQueen uh, creating, you know, education as part of that Small acts series. And also, as I said, media picking up on the fact that, you know, there's, of course, always been a joint effort from the powers that be to make certain groups of children educationally subnormal or labelled as such. But then there's the other side of that where, for me, you know, you look at the reaction to it and you think, How can all of these white people not have known this? (laughs) How can white people who were teachers in this time, in this era, not have been aware of this? And then you start having those questions around, well, is there an absolute blind ignorance to it? Is it about privilege? Is it about just, oh, that's not my concern. You know, there was something wrong with these kids. This is just how we dealt with it. But I look again at the parallels, you know, when we're thinking about SEND. It's, it's, It's... it's very, very, very similar.
0: Catherine, I know you have concerns about how excluded children in the early years are if they have SEND and also come from diverse ethnic communities. What are the longer-term impacts of this situation?
2: Um, when I mean, for any child who has SEND, um, obviously not getting the early intervention that they could have, leads to massive lifelong um, changes in what they can achieve. And I just, I think that when, when we work, so when I worked overseas, one of the, I worked in Sri Lanka for a number of years and what was really, really difficult was that um, there was sort of a belief that children with SEND really weren't worth sending to school because they weren't really going to achieve anything. Um, And In that situation, it was so, so difficult to to actually access those children and and families. And so children who actually could have ended up potentially going to mainstream primary school had they had the right intervention in the early years, um, ended up staying at home, not getting any intervention at all, and then really, really suffered when when they got to the primary age. I mean, in Sri Lanka, that meant that often they were institutionalized. But in the UK, I think I think I made an assumption, okay, this and this is awful, but I made an assumption, you know what, this probably doesn't happen in the UK <laughs> because I was over in Sri Lanka for most of my, uh, from the age of 18, and then I was overseas until um, I came back to the UK when I was 30. And so for a long time, I was overseas. And I think what was really shocking for me was coming back to the UK and then starting to understand the system in the UK and realising that actually lots and lots of children are still not getting that best start in the early years and then you know the, the research shows that in, in the long term if you have some experience of the mainstream your outcomes will be better in in life and obviously early years where everything's based around play is going to be the your best chance to get as many children as possible included in the same classroom and I think in in this country, if, if you're from a community where possibly there are cultural beliefs about disability, um, certainly when, when I was working um, overseas, there was a belief that if you worked with a child with disability and you were pregnant, your unborn child would also develop a disability. And sort of those kind of beliefs, I think, you know, it's not... It's not for anyone to judge what a belief system is, but it is to say, you know, let's talk and understand and listen and be with, you know, be with people to have those discussions. I certainly found that through real discussion and real listening and trying to understand families, certainly in in the work that you do with children, children with SEND, it is that point where you know you can show examples, you can show evidence, and families can start understand actually there is potential and for all families regardless of what background they come from what their traditions are you know it's those first years with a child with SEND are really really shaped by who gives you advice who talks to you and who understands you and I think that we have to understand that when you look at nurseries and to be honest when you look at medical professionals as well you know, it's not equally accessible to people from all backgrounds. You know, the the evidence is there that health is not as accessible. And, you know, when you look at uh, nurseries, you know, it is, they are often run by a certain type of often sort of white, um, often older females. And when they are in control of that and in control of that setting, it, it, it becomes... It becomes a place where not necessarily everybody feels welcome or feels that um, you know that that they can succeed in that. And I just believe that if we don't have the right conversations at the right time with people, then they're not going to send their children to earlier settings because it's not statutory. And as a result, you're going to end up with children who end up with well, achieving much less in their lives because of the fact that we as a sector didn't work responsibly, effectively with all types of families.
0: So I think, I mean, we're looking for genuine engagement, aren't we, with families? And uh, Do you have any advice on how we can truly engage families from minoritized communities?
2: Um, I mean, I, I can certainly talk about what we are doing and are trying to do. I'm not saying it's, it's you know, the best, <laughs> because, I mean, I suppose what, is important to understand about our settings and this makes it quite different to a lot of other settings, especially London settings, is that we have very, very, very few staff members from diverse ethnic communities. And that has, that was a big issue and something I spoke to Liz about when I first started talking to her about this work. And, you know, one of the key things is, you know, when a family goes into your setting, they see people like themselves. It feels like, you know, they are, part of that group. And my worry was always looking at our teams and regardless of how open, how, you know, aware or how, what their life experiences were, just on the surface when you look at that group of people, and I've, I've certainly heard this from, um, certainly we have a trustee who herself was originally from Nigeria. And she sort of works with us on on equity, diversity, and inclusion. And she looked at our website, and she just said, "Oh my word, it's so white, you know." <laughs> and of course, you just got to think those families are going to walk into that setting and go, "White setting, you know." It's it's natural. In you know, I I think I think I mean I've I've lived overseas and gone into rooms and and, and kept thinking, "Oh my god, I'm I'm the only one here again," um. And uh, you know, I mean that's. That, that will put people off. So I think, you know, firstly, wherever you can, it's really encouraging. And when I say encouraging, so we target um, we target community groups and we target community Um, maybe religious settings and so recently a volunteer came to us in one of our centres and said the imam had heard about us because we targeted that setting and advised they come and volunteer for us and i think you have to take that responsibility you have to look at it and say we've got to actively appeal to people because otherwise they probably won't hear about us or they just won't feel welcome to come and work for us um, and then, you know, in addition, we, we sort of said, we have to have diverse interview panels. So even if you don't have that diversity on your staff team, it's inviting some parents from diverse ethnic communities to say, could you come in and actually sit on our interview panel? And then you can also give your views and it becomes just a more diverse process. Um, and then I think really with the way that we work with families, again, it's being as flexible as you possibly can. Um, you know, we've had issues around translation because we don't have every language in our centre, um, and there are lots of different languages among our families. So, you know, it may be that some families say, uh, "I find it easier just to do simple texting. I don't want to talk on the phone." Then accept it, do that. Um, we've used Google Translate, even though it's not ideal, but it works. You know, and and of course, you know, inviting family members to come along to help with translation. So it's sort of I think we've just been as flexible as we possibly can. And, um, and then more recently around sort of our equity and diversity action plan, it's been much more around looking at you know, what do we think is normal in our setting? And I'm saying normal inverted commas, but you won't be able to see those on a, on a podcast. But, okay. <laughs> but uh, you know, what is a normal nursery rhyme? And again, it's Humpty Dumpty. It's, you know, all these traditional, again, white nursery rhymes. So, we're you know, we've really started to work hard on trying to understand, you know, what are the other nursery rhymes? And again, with food, what is the other types of food? Do you automatically say a snack is a ham sandwich? Well, you know, <laughs> a ham sandwich isn't everyone's idea of a. Uh, you know, a normal snack. So it's, we're just trying really, really hard to understand just a wider range of what is standard and what is the norm in our settings. And we're working really hard to try to sort of widen that. And again, not just because someone's there, but because we want it to reflect the world. We want to reflect diversity. I
0: know that I've spoken to you before, Liz, about sort of reflections on... um, My own career and the times that I've been working in schools, and a big chunk of my career, I've been working in in classes where the majority of children are black, autistic boys. And I think when we talk about intersection and belonging, I I did consider a lot that this child was autistic. I considered that they were um, potentially more often than not pre-verbal. I would consider that they were a boy and all the things that we consider when we're thinking in that way. But I didn't, on reflection, think enough about the fact that they were black boys and about their culture and about their families. Um, And I always believed that having good relationships with parents was really important and I I devoted a lot of my energy to it, but I just didn't think about it enough. And it's so important Um, and then throw into the mix that, sometimes I'd be in a class of seven children in a specialist provision and there might be four or five white staff working in that class. It's just, um, it w- would have been so impactful for those children to have um, relatable adults to work with and to, to comfort them if they were um, concerned or upset as many of our children could be because it's overwhelming, obviously Um And I think, yeah, just it's so important to reflect on these things and some of the advice you've given there, I think is really helpful. Liz, you've recently delivered training um, for Dignies. Could you tell us about the importance of early years practitioners accessing such information and also why racial literacy is so important?
1: Well, I think kind of looking at what you had said, Stephen, and reflecting again as well for me on the conversations, the many conversations that me and you have had What we've been able to do, all three of us actually in different ways, is build on a relationship that has a foundation of trust. And I think when we're thinking about building relationships, they do transcend a lot of lines which would ordinarily keep us with people that look like us or share our same values or share our same culture. And so we need to be really mindful about when we're thinking about identity politics, what that actually means and also how we lend ourselves to certain conversations irrespective of our identity markers. Because it isn't to say that. Black children should only be looked after by Black practitioners or Black teachers. It is to say representation does matter to an extent. You have to make sure that many of the things that Catherine had spoken about, you know, doing that additional work, that that is what it looks like. What Catherine had spoken about was the work of ensuring that you are accessible and that people know about you so that there's a hypervisibility visibility you know, of you and the work that you're doing in your space. And it does mean that you engage with communities that are different from your own, but you do that in a fearless way, but you do it in a respectful way. And hindsight is a wonderful thing. We can all sit and think, oh, we should have done that better. And we perhaps should have considered this. Um, But we have to look at those wider, I guess, systemic issues around not just us being complicit in a system which upholds white supremacy, but also asking the question, why? Why were we complicit in a system that upheld white supremacy? So when you are reflecting there, Stephen, and thinking about, yeah, of course, it would have been actually quite different had it have been, say, um, three black men who were teachers in that uh, school, who worked directly with that class of seven black boys. Yes, the impact would have been different, of course, um, because there's a shared perhaps cultural understanding and uh, a familiarity around nuances, but it isn't to also assume that all black people are the same or that everybody's homogenous, because of course, if you are black and your heritage is rooted in Nigeria, it's very different to being black and your heritage being rooted in St. Lucia. And so when we're thinking about that word diversity, it isn't just applicable to racialized identities, but it is thinking about how we approach these things with a nuanced understanding. And I think lots of the conversations that I have are not about tokenistic gestures, but they are about having those deeper, broader conversations. um, And and as I said earlier on naming it. So it's really interesting that, you know, I guess privilege, white privilege, white supremacy structures around what we are doing It it lulls us into this false sense of security where, yeah, we'll talk about gender. Yeah, we'll talk about ability. Yes, we'll definitely talk about access. We won't talk about race because that's impolite. If we start talking about race, we're going to get into this different space and nobody's comfortable talking about race. And that's that's actually a, a fallacy. You know, to a certain degree, I've spoken about race all of my professional career um, and all of my, my life because I don't have the, the, the liberty or the privilege to not address race because I'm racialized as black as you are racialized as white. What's interesting is that the norm, which is really interesting when Catherine spoke about those normal ideas, um, the norm is that people who are racialized as white, they are not named as such. That's why we get into these conversations around, so why is everybody else bane? And then that's it we don't talk about being racialized as white and you see the outrage because (laughs) even when people are redressed people who are racialized as white are told that they are white by and large we see this societal reaction to you know how dare you say that we're white almost it's really interesting and we see a lot of these parallels again with what's going on in football with what's happening with people talking about social justice and taking the knee and some of this outrage where These things are being debated. These things are being spoken about as if there shouldn't be any reaction to racism. There should just be this complicit nature that we're all just, oh, yeah, it is what it is. You know, this footballer did this and then the fans reacted like that. This cricketer said this, but, oh, you know, it was a long time ago. He was 18. And so we have to think about these wider social impacts and these issues and how it how it penetrates throughout all of our systems. Um, And all of our establishments and institutions, education in the early years is not excluded from this conversation because we are all people that make up this society. And so when I think about some of that work that I had done um, with with Dingley's Promise and and talked about some of those starters, when we think about engagement and family, that's all that they were. They were starters. You just drop those ideas in so that you hope for a, a level of momentum that we keep that up. And and some of the things that Catherine had spoken about were brilliant examples of keeping up that momentum. When I kind of came into thinking about family engagement, yes, representation came into that. And also uh, looking at um, not just recruitment, but retention, because you can get people who um, are from different or varied ethnic groups. How do you make sure that people stay And that's where the conversation around belonging comes in. How do people feel as though they are a part of this? Why is there such a conversation and a concern around resources and representative resources? Now, these should have always been the conversation. So again, Stephen, in hindsight, you reflect back and you think about, did those black boys see themselves represented in the resources that you've had? Or did they look at... um, you, as you know, you're the teacher, you're the practitioner, you're the person that's in charge, and we're the people that are here to learn from you. Were there conversations around how best to support families if we take this? And I think this is where the notion of colorblindness has come in. If we take this colorblind approach, you know, we don't have to talk about race, we don't, you know, we're all just people, we're all just happy. You know, again, it's this big lie that we've all been told that we should buy into. It is important. And it is a conversation that is absolutely necessary because trust, communication, community, belonging, grassroots, all of these things have a place in, in, you know, send provision and also in the conversation around anti-racism. So I think when I was thinking about some of those ways in which I was going to organise, I guess, a course which looked at Intersectionality around SEND and anti racism. It was something that I was really excited about building because I wanted it to be something that I could do in other SEND provisions. And I also made sure that I, I sought help and assistance. So I did that, you know, alongside Kerry Payne and alongside um, Fifi Benham because of number one, lived experiences, uh, and number two, specialist knowledge now both Kerry and Fifi are racialized as whites did I look and say oh actually you're not going to be the best people for the job because you are not a part of um uh, another ethnic minority group um yeah okay there was a conversation around them being best suited for the work that I was going to do I may do that again with them in the future I may not You know, but at that time, when I was looking at how I wanted to build this, they were people that, number one, I trusted people that I did a lot of work with in the past with regards to having conversations around some of the thought processes that I wanted to bring into the work and the way in which I structured things. And also they were people who were willing to be vulnerable and talk to talk about their lived experience with regards to their journey in anti-racism. But I lent into texts which really supported some of the work that I was thinking about. So I thought a lot about there is um, a brilliant woman called Susie Rowland who wrote a book called Sending the Clowns. Um, and Susie talks about her experience of, you know, being a Black woman with a Black son and her journey through. Basically, the institution uh, and looking at diagnosis, looking at send, looking at autism um, specifically, and looking at that wider context of where she was positioned in her journey. But I used that text to inform some of the work that I was doing with Dingley's Promise and with Catherine and was really transparent about the fact that I was leaning into texts which looked at those intersections of identity. So I just think there has to have there has to be a conversation around, you know identity and representation and knowledge base and the source of where we're getting our knowledge, but also as Catherine so brilliantly said, who and what is placed as normal? What does normal mean? What does normal look like in a setting which really wants to value belonging?
0: From, from your point of view then, Catherine, after taking part in the training, what's the impact been on, on yourself and your team?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because we, I'll be honest, I was quite nervous um, when we first started to talk about race and anti-racism at English Promise because I just didn't know what the response was going to be. Not to say I wasn't going to do it, but I really, really didn't know how people were going to respond. And I think the first thing we did was we did a little, on our team day last year, we did an activity, we watched... um, parts of school that tried to end racism. So, because it was very education focused and I thought people will you know, resonate with that. And then we did a really short activity on privilege and it was just about people closing their eyes, listening to a statement and putting their hands up if they'd ever experienced that. And it was just a way to sort of just try to start to get people to think, oh my God, I've never had to think about that in my life or I've never had to tell my children how to deal with the police because that's not something we have to think about we whoever we is you know and so it was sort of that was sort of like the sort of entrance to the whole discussion and then of course I spoke to Liz and I think what what was really interesting to me was that when people went through the training with Liz um sort of like the feedback was firstly you know a lot of feedback about how friendly engaging and I think that sort of reflects possibly before the training there's always a little bit of nervousness you know are we going to be told off if we say the wrong thing you know us as early years practitioners in this area you know maybe we are going to offend people or not have you know not have the right way to respond and, and they didn't feel that at all and, and i think that's really important again as you mentioned before liz safety it needs to be a safe space. It needs to be a place where people can make mistakes. And I would rather someone made a mistake and we talked about it than people are just too scared to, to say anything. Obviously, for for this training, it was quite hard because it was Zoom. And I think that, you know, ideally, you're face-to-face and you can have more of those honest discussions. But I think um, there's lots of the feedback talked about It was something that people didn't have insight on before. It was something that started conversations. It's something that made them challenge themselves. And so again, for me, it's very much, it's that first step of really good, valid, um, evidenced information that they can look at. And they're all now looking at it, doing further reading. As a result of the training, um, so I think a lot of it was around concepts that some people found really hard to get their heads around. And so, <clears throat> so there was feedback to sort of say they need to have more discussions as teams, they need to really think about it because I think um, if it's not something you've ever discussed before, it can be quite, um, quite overwhelming to realize there's this whole area that you've been happily bumbling along doing your own thing and just not ever thought about. So I think that at the moment is, is where they are. They're really, you know, really grateful for that start. Now each of the centres has got an, has got their own plan of the things they're going to focus on in their centre to make it better. Um, and to sort of, and then linking that into our overall action plan. And then in September, Liz is going to come back face to face, which is going to be amazing face to face. So, actually people can really interact with her and talk to her and, and, again, actually have something to discuss because I think it was so at the beginning of our process that, in a way, people were learning so much and didn't have that much to give back. So I think the next stage where we then have Liz with us to really discuss progress or difficulties or, you know, that will be really, really useful. And, and, and certainly for us as an organisation, this is now ongoing And, you know, we have to commit to making sure that we keep working on this.
0: Yeah, I think ongoing is the word, isn't it, Catherine? Once you've started this journey, there's no no stopping. Liz, coming to the end now, I just wanted to ask you, how do you think we need to position ourselves as a sector in the early years with regards to our own teaching and learning?
1: Um, I think there has to be a conversation around not just addressing this imaginary elephant in the room not just leaving it there thinking about how we're going to move that elephant (laughs) into the real world so we all understand the elephant's there we're gonna have to do something about this elephant because it's not moving Um, it's taking up a lot of space and we can't just ignore it and be like oh excuse me can we just move around you um we really as a sector need to reckon with the fact that you know institutionalized and systemic racism is ever present. It isn't just uh, those people over there, it is us. We have to really acknowledge that. And that's really hard to reckon with, but we can't ignore the fact that, you know, one of the questions that I ask in CPD um, when I'm delivering is how many times have you been in a space where there's a black woman leading your CPD in early years? And often this is the question, oh, never actually. And also I've never really thought about it. Why? <laughs> Why, when we talk about who has the power then, because you know, racism is about power. When we look at the early year sector, who has the power? Who is writing the policies and the guidance that we are using? Who is in a position to say, yes, that's right. No, that's wrong. Who's coming in regulating our sector? What does that regulatory body look like? Who does it consist of? And what is the information? I often have this thought around it's so interesting that you know ofsted regulates this this sector uh, is there a conversation around anti-racism or are we still in this place of oh we'll talk about diversity and we'll have a little conversation about uh all oh, celebrations that's it finished that is not anti-racism and if we're going to address the inequity and the the lack of access for certain groups of people. We cannot wait for another 40 years for a documentary to be on, to be like, oh, yeah, that time, you know, Ofsted, they never spoke about anti-racism. What? You know, it took for you know, unfortunately, the murder of Stephen Lawrence, for us to have the McPherson report, and then everybody was like, oh, right, we're fine. That's fine. You know, everything's, it's good now. But then, you know... Dejan Reed was murdered the other week, you know, in in my my city, and we're having conversations around racially motivated mur- murders of of, of children. Now again, this is a conversation that needs to be had. We cannot rest on our laurels and be comfortable with the fact that, yep, yeah, McPherson report that sorted out that um, institutionalised racism in the police. Right, that doesn't happen anymore. Well, it does because you know we're still having conversations around stop and search and disproportionate amounts of black people, black men particularly. So as a sector, we have to reckon with this. We have to address it, we have to have conversations, not just about anti-racism and thinking that's it, but we have to think about the action that needs to be taken and we need to look at it in a very wide um, uh, wide way because there are systems that are still in operation that are upholding white supremacy in the early years sector. And as uncomfortable as that is, and as upsetting as that may be, it is the fact of the matter. And so unless we're willing to do that, we're going to be having these conversations and people who are going to come way after me as people have been there before me, having this conversation around anti-racism and the movement of anti-racism. This is not new. None of what I'm doing is new. There is documentation that's been there since forever in a day that's talked about the need for provision for conversations and practice that supports minoritized children so we have to kind of move forward now into a different space of where action has to be taken that's why I'm very unapologetic about taking up space I'm very unapologetic about the work that I do it's absolutely necessary I'm not going to stop because people are upset or right-wing Tory MPs are angered that the word anti-racism appears in non-statutory guidance you know that means nothing to me what means the most, actually, is that we've got equitable access um, and, I guess, no, a real driving force for our sector, for children who are ordinarily overlooked and assumed to just be doing all right because, you know, they're plodding along.
0: I think that's a really powerful way to to conclude our conversation. Thank you so much, Catherine and Liz, for joining me this morning. Um, I, I hope this will be a really... Um, thought-provoking episode for our listeners. Thank you.